the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. Welcome back to the Cooper Vortex. As always, we have another great guest for you today. But before we get to that, I'd like to let you guys know something I've been dealing with. To make a long story very short, I had an accident and lost my front tooth, which impacted my speech. A real bummer considering my hobby was talking into a mic. But 18 months later, a few surgeries and 12,000 out of pocket, I can now smile and speak confidently. So we're back. Our guest today is George McKeon. George is an artist, graphic designer, and the author of The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, a true crime adult coloring book. It's a really fun project, and since there are no pictures of Cooper, the illustrations really give you a sense of exactly what happened. Plus, it's on Amazon right now for $10. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, George McKeon. George, when was the first time you heard about D.B. Cooper? Well, uh, like a lot of people around my age, it was probably with the old TV series In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy. Um, I was probably, I don't know, maybe 10, maybe somewhere around there. And um, of course, it captured my imagination even as a young boy. Um, so yeah, that was the first time. Where were you living at the time? Um, I'm in, in New York. I'm, I'm in general in the same area where I was born within you know, about 50 miles, for about 50 miles north of New York City. Um, so even though this happened on the other side of the country, um, it's something that's I've always kind of been aware of, like I said, even as a young boy. And through the years, even I, I have a long history in publishing. I've been publishing for over 30 years and I've worked on, I don't know, close to a thousand books. And throughout that time, there have been at least three or four, you know, either true crime or mystery compilations. And invariably, uh, D.D. Cooper would be part of uh, those books. And of course, I always, you know, I always loved the story. How deep into D.B. Cooper did you go? I get the feeling you're not the guy who's checking the forum six times a day like I am. No, I'm not. Uh, but I, I'll tell you, it's, you know, I should say that, first of all, even before I decided to do this project, and it's, it's just a coincidence, but my daughter, my daughter, who's, um, she's 24 years old, she's the one who turned me on to your podcast. Uh, she has her own podcast, but she's the one who, who told me about your podcast. And so I started listening to it. I was like, this is amazing. This is, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been looking for. And I listened to one or two. I forget which was the first one I listened to, but I probably listened to, you've probably done what, about 25 maybe? Somewhere I've done 50. Okay, 50. Well, then I've, I've listened to at least 25 of them then. And, um, but, you know, what's interesting, 
I think like a lot of people, once I started, I mean, like, I think like most people, I knew the basics of the story. I knew there was a guy, you know, who hijacked a plane and he asked for $200,000 ransom. And then he escaped by jumping out of the plane. But that's all I really knew. I think that's the majority of people. That's about as deep as it went. Um, over the years, of course, I, I learned more. But um, since working on this project, I've learned probably <laughs> more than I ever imagined. And I think it's interesting that, you know, the, the more you know, the more you want to know. And the more you think you know, it's almost like the less you know, and you have more questions, and you're really not quite sure about anything. <laughs> Definitely. You know, right. I mean, especially it seems to me, and actually I'm hoping you, you can clear up a few things for me. Um, there are a lot of inconsistencies out there, as you know, um, where you'll, from one source, you'll, you'll hear one thing, and from another source, you'll hear something else. For instance, uh, so the, the, you know, the ransom money, um, I, from two different sources, one source that I've seen says that the FBI was the one who photographed each bill um, recording each serial number. And then another source says, no, this money was already set aside by the bank in Seattle for such an occasion for you know a ransom scenario and that the serial numbers were already recorded. So what's your understanding? Which is what's more accurate? I, I believe the latter to be true. Uh, from what I understand, the bank did have a, a stack of cash on hand for such an emergency and they had already had those numbers recorded. So they were able to give that list that they had to the FBI. Right. I think that, right. That, that makes more sense. Um, but I mean, like I said, I'm sure you're aware if, if you, if you're looking at the, a bunch of different sources, it'll tell you that the FBI or, and they even said they used, you know, micro microfilm or something to, to take. Uh, and they said, and some of the sources that that's what, that's why it took so much time. And that's why the plane had to circle, uh, you know, the sound for so long to gather, you know, to gather up the money and to record these bills. But you're, but you think it's probably that uh, this money was already sort of set aside and ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I okay. think it was harder for them to find parachutes than it was to find 200000 in cash. Well, that's another thing. I, at some point, I would like to uh, talk about that because that's one of the things that just drives me crazy about this case is the whole issue of the, um, you know, the dummy parachute. Um, well, let's but, get right again, into parachutes. Okay, let's, okay. Well, again, I think, um, so as you know, the story goes that there were four parachutes and two of the reserves and, and one of the reserves, I suppose, I guess he, um, he cut open to use uh, some of the, the cord. Is that, is that correct? Yes. Okay. And so they say that he took the dummy chute and apparently that it had like a big red X on it or something. I don't and know that, if course, it had a red X. I've heard that. I also heard that just the flap was sewn shut and then it had... Right. Um, uh, like an X sewn into that, but I, I don't know. I've never seen it. Anyway, so it seems to me like uh, the FBI sort of used that as evidence that this, you know, that this man didn't know, wasn't really, didn't have much experience as a, you know, with parachutes. 
and therefore probably discounted the, the idea that he had some sort of military experience as a paratrooper. Um, but I, I guess my question has always been, well, then how, like, how did that, how did that miss, how was that mistake made that that shoot was given in the first place? Like, how does, how was, uh, I mean, you're assuming this came from the local skydiving school, right? I mean, and you're assuming these people are experts. How was that mistake made, especially if they thought at one point that he might possibly take hostages? I mean, you think they would be extra careful and that something like this just, just wouldn't happen. And I guess my, so what I'm saying is that if they could make some, a mistake like this, people who deal with parachutes every day, all day, then isn't it possible that even someone with uh, experience like D.B. Cooper possibly had, that he could also make that mistake and that it, it sort of discounts the FBI's claim that he, he w- did not have much knowledge of uh, parachutes. Let me ask you this, George, do you have much experience with parachutes? I've never been, I know I, I do not have any experience. Would you plan a crime where you had to escape by parachute? Absolutely not. <laughs> That's my first thought always. Like there are other crimes you could commit if you don't have experience parachuting. Robbing a bank, it seems to me, while of course it presents its own challenges and dangers, has got to be easier than what D.B. Cooper uh, tackled. I mean, it's just got to be. But oh, I think yeah. you're right. I mean, it seems to me this is a guy, he probably said to himself, well, this is what I know. These, this, this is the skill set I have. And therefore, this is, this is the crime I'm going to commit because I'm going to use the skills and experience that I have to make this happen. Yeah, I, I just don't believe that he was a total novice. Also, um, Flyjack, who is on the forums, and if you're deep in the vortex, you will have heard that name before, but he's been doing so much work on the parachutes. And I generally, I generally don't even like to talk about them because I'm not, I've read so many conflicting reports and opinions and theories that right. I'm not even sure I have the story straight myself. Right. But Flyjack has been doing some pretty impressive work uh, going through the FBI files and all these interviews. And I wish he would come on my show. So Flyjack, I know you're listening to this. Come on the show. But he's been posting about how there were the two main parachutes on board. And when the FBI gets on the plane in Reno, there's only one parachute on board and for the mains. And they reach in and there are two of the certification cards. I forgot the actual term for it. People are going to be so upset with me. But there are these cards you put in a parachute. Hey, it was packed on this date by this dude. And this is the parachute and serial number. Inspection card, maybe this term for it. But the parachute left aboard the plane had two cards in it. So Flyjack is theorizing that Cooper pulled the card out of one parachute. And if you're a novice, you wouldn't know where that was. And you probably wouldn't care about it anyways. So he pulls that card out and then sticks it in the other parachute that he didn't use. And if that's true, it tells us exactly what parachute he jumped with, which is a little bit different than what we'd all been believing this whole time. So, I mean, even still 50 years later, we're still trying to figure out what parachute he used. Although Flyjack's information seems seems pretty solid to me. Come on the show, Flyjack. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I would love to hear that. I would love to hear that episode. Now, how about the, um, so as long as you brought up the parachutes, now, is it true then that because he chose the military, I mean, there, I guess the two main shoots, one was a military and then one was a civilian parachute, and that the military shoot that he chose um, didn't have, um, what are they called, D-rings, I suppose is what they're called? Right, to attach the reserve. Right. So I'm assuming that's true. And I, but I, I guess just from based on what I've heard on your show, um, even, it seems to be that more than likely he used the other uh, parachute sort of as a, as a bag anyway to, to, you know, to, to put stuff in rather than as an actual parachute. Is, is that probably accurate? I think that's very likely. I wonder what he did with all this stuff. I mean, he had a, he had a handful. He had, he had an attache case. He had a bunch of money. He had, um, you know, he had a lot of stuff. He did have a lot of stuff and none of it's been found. I always think, you know, the whole no pull theory, I think we would have found a pile of garbage Something. and some human bones at some point. Because um, it's just, it's not like no one ever walks around in that area. Well, let me ask you this, because I know you're from that area. Now, of course, it's been 50 years. So I'm assuming since then they're along that, you know, um, in the drop zone, let's just say, has there been a lot of uh, development in that area over the years? I don't think so. It's obviously a little more developed than it was in 71. But that area, it's a lot of a lot of properties with a lot of land, um, some really, really small towns that haven't really changed in my lifetime. So I, I really don't think there's been much development at all in the area. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that after, you know, we're talking 50 years, something would have been found. Although I guess it's sort of getting to the point now where as far as a body's concerned, I don't know after 50 years out in the elements if that's indeed what happened. Um, I can't imagine there's too much left of, of old DB. No, 50 years out in the wild, I think we'd be lucky to find bones. Um, so what is your feeling? Do you, do, you think, do you think he made it? I do. I think he survived the jump. I mean, I so, there's yeah. equal evidence to support that he died and that he lived because there's no evidence either way. I think that's what's amazing about this case is that the, the minute he left the plane, and then, of course, other than the, you know, the money on Tina Barr, um, any and all, you know, theories are legitimate until otherwise proven true, you know, true or false. Oh, and yeah. I say it all the time. The I mean, the, the entire D.V. Cooper story starts on the plane and ends on the plane. There is no story of him before that. Right. And there's no story about him after that. I think that's what's I think that's part of the fascination is, you know, even starting from the police sketch in that, you know, it's a it's a fairly generic I mean, I mean, I know there are two sketches and both are, you know, different, but the first one in particular is very generic and it's, you know, it, it's almost like it could be anyone, especially around that time, um, you know, where a lot of men looked, looked like that. They sort of had the same haircut and because there are no, there really aren't any kind of distinguishing features on him. I mean, he, he he doesn't have, you know, a scar or big ears or a big nose or, or anything. He, he looks just very generic. And I think that's why people can, they can project pretty much anyone uh, to be 
him based on, on the sketch. And at the same time, people can, because there's such little evidence about what happened to this guy, they can kind of create their own story and no one can really, I mean, really no one can, can uh, you know, deny you until there's new evidence uncovered. Oh yeah, even some of the wildest suspects, you can't say without a doubt, no way, because we don't know enough to rule someone out. Right. Um, and I, I, I mean, why this, I know a lot of times you ask your guests uh, why this story doesn't get more, you know, more love, I suppose. And I don't understand myself because I can imagine this whole story being a Netflix series, quite frankly, because it is, it is so interesting. There are so many fascinating characters. I mean, the crime itself is, you know, something out of a Hollywood blockbuster. And, the, and then the, the suspects, I mean, you have, uh, you know, McCoy and Rackstraw and uh, Barb Dayton. I mean, this is, these people could have their own, you know, they could have their own series. And I mean, you know, and we're talking about, you know, the airline industry sort of at the tail end of the golden age when, uh, you know, before, before, um, you know, flight attendants had to duct tape passengers to their seats <laughs> more, you know, more sophisticated time. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I don't understand it. But uh, maybe, maybe, maybe there is something planned for the 50th anniversary we don't know about. I, I hope so. There's a, there's a couple projects in the works. I've talked to a, a movie and TV producer or two over the last few years, and they all want a project that focuses on a suspect. And I just don't think that's really the right way to go with this. I mean, maybe if you did a Netflix series where you were focusing on one suspect per episode and did right. that, but then that's just exactly my show. <laughs> um, but <laughs> if you want to put a program together and it's pushing Rackstraw or Kenny Christensen or even Barb Dayton, there's just, they have to make the story fit the suspect. And I, I'm just not a big fan of that. Even like the last uh, Expedition Unknown with Josh Gates, there was a whole like, it's Rekka thing. And they, they'll give you all the evidence for why it could be. But for all the people that are deep in the vortex, it's like, I can give you 17 reasons why I don't think it's Rackstraw and you'd never brought those up. Right. And it seems to be that these suspects that are really unpopular inside the vortex that get the most media attention. You mean, for instance, like McCoy, Rackstraw, uh, Kenny Christensen, those, those types? Yeah, absolutely. Those types. Well, it's interesting. I was just listening to um, one, one of your episodes today. Um, I'm trying to remember who Johnny Searles, is that his name? Yes. And he 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 steadfastly believes that McCoy is is DB. You know they're one and the same. And I have to say, after, after listening to your podcast, he he certainly made a lot of good points. Um, but you're right. I mean, of course, at the same time, there are there are other. You know, there's ten different reasons why he couldn't be DB Cooper. But um, I, you know, I I suppose he's as he's a good a suspect as anyone. McCoy, I think, is really interesting. I don't think he's Cooper, right. but part of me 
maybe you know the the wild conspiracy side of me wants to believe that McCoy knew who Cooper was and maybe even got his information for the hijacking from Cooper himself. I think you're right because it seems he seems to have you know he has all the tools um, he has the experience. He was a, well, a helicopter pilot mm-hmm. and a, a decorated veteran, you know, like a real badass. And it, it seems to me that, you know, you have to have a certain personality to make this happen. I know a lot of people think it could be maybe a, you know, a disgruntled Boeing engineer. And I suppose it could be if the, if that same engineer had some sort of uh, military background, I could, but I don't, I don't know. It seems to me that uh, you'd have to have a certain personality type. And at the same time, like, what is your feeling about, I can't imagine this, 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 who, you know, whoever this person was, that this was the first crime they've ever committed, (laughs) you know, that for whatever, you know, they have the, or Dan Cooper said, I don't have a grudge against um, Northwest. I I just have a grudge. I don't know. I, I can't imagine a more stressful situation where you're, you're facing life imprisonment or, um, you know, either being killed by FBI agents or being killed as you, you jump out of the plane or, 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 you know, not making it to the ground. It just seems like an incredibly difficult, stressful situation. And by all accounts, of course, he was, as we all know, calm, cool and collected. And I don't, he either has did something like this before or had some sort of military or possibly, I don't know, maybe intelligence service background where he, he carried on operations like this before because I, I don't see how someone just, you know, walks off the street and pulls this off. I mean, I can see if he was very sort of panicky and made mistakes and I can see that, but I don't know. It seems... It, I think he had to have some sort of experience in operations like this or other kind of criminal uh, acts. Oh yeah. I forgot who said it on my show, but they said, uh, if you looked at the Mona Lisa, you wouldn't say that's the first painting that guy did. (laughs) That's exactly right. Right. (laughs) Another thing I really struggle with is dudes that have great jobs. Um, Right. I'm sorry, if you have a good job and a trade and a family, at 45, you are not risking at all for, for this much money. I Absolutely mean, not. and the worst one is when people say the pilots were in on it. Do you know what a good job that was in 1971 and how prestigious it was? Absolutely no evidence. There is, there's no way those dudes were in on it at all. And even the stewardesses, I've talked to a bunch of people now who have worked for the airlines in the 60s and 70s, and they all say the same thing. It was the greatest job ever, and we were having a great time. No, like, oh, yeah, I was so mad at the airline. I thought about staging a bomb on the aircraft. No, that would be the worst thing for them to do. Right. Wouldn't even cross their mind. It's funny because the amount of money... I don't know. To me, it seems like a random amount, 200,000. And I mean, why not, you know, why not round it up to 250,000, make it, you know, a quarter of a million. I wonder if there was, uh, you know, a reason why 
he chose $200,000. Maybe it was for debt or something else. I mean, I guess, I guess we'll probably never know, but it does seem like kind of a random number to me. I agree. I also wonder, did he know that there was money at Sea First Bank right. for this occasion right. and chose to withdraw uh, an amount f- from that? Right. You know, if he knew they had 250 and he asks for 500,000, uh, now there's a problem because they got to figure out a way to find two, another 250,000 in cash. And I think it's really interesting that McCoy, I think he asked for 500,000, didn't he? 500,000 in hundreds. Right. See, that's interesting too. Why he would ask for hundreds, I'm not sure, but I'm sure, I guess because it's, it's, he had to be, uh, I suppose, economical, right? I mean, 500,000 in $20 bills, I imagine is probably going to weigh quite a bit. Oh yeah. It would be like 60 pounds. Right. Right. He's uh, yeah. He's a really interesting character on his own, uh, whether he is or, or is not Cooper. Um, I mean, I could, again, I could see a whole series just on, just on his life because, Oh yeah. You know, he, he played, he was, you know, I, I guess he was, um, he was a Mormon, correct. Mm-hmm. And he was, a was he at the same time a student at Brigham, Brigham Young? Yep. And a Sunday school teacher. And a, fam- and a family man and, 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 a, and a decorated veteran. And then on the side, he was, uh, I don't know, he, he just went for it. And now it, the reason he, he didn't have any specific reason for his, I mean, he didn't need this money specifically. He just wanted this money. And he thought, I can do this. I can, I can pull this off. Yeah, I've, I have a theory and I've heard some other people say it also. There was kind of like a thin fatale aspect to it and that potentially... Uh, she was the brains of the operation and knew her right. man could do it. Yeah. And it seems like, yeah, he's uh right. He is, he's a real character. Who, who is your, do you have a, do, I'm sure your suspects probably changed. Do you have a current favorite or do you? Uh, currently I like, I like Ted Braden. I also like Wolfgang Gossett quite a bit. Oh, that's a new one to me. Okay. I, I, I know of Braden and certainly from what I know of, him he certainly um pretty much of, of any of the other suspects he certainly could have pulled this off um no question about it now he was also in his civilian life he was a truck driver is that correct i'm not a hundred percent sure on that i there's a story where a, a gentleman ran into him and he was driving truck for pittsburgh glass i think right okay um but his whole life after the military is sketchy and there's missing information here and there i mean one story i love that drew beeson uncovered and you know his book paratrooper fortune is just awesome but ted Braden gets pulled over at like 72 years old for drunk driving refuses to identify himself has no license no registration and no insurance that's that's such a weird move for a man that age to do like f you i'm not going to tell you who i am yeah. That's just so odd to me. He's a real uh, badass till the end, I suppose. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Wolfgang, I mean, he's got another one where whether or not he's Cooper, led a wild life. I did, uh, I had his son on the show, Greg Gossett. And that was one where I kind of like, I knew of Wolfgang and he was a suspect, but I, I maybe didn't take it that seriously. And then I'm, met Greg and did the interview. And then I was like, okay, wow, Wolfgang is a serious suspect in my mind now. Right. 
but I'm gullible. So who knows? <laughs> right. Yeah, because I mean, you're right. I mean, when, when you have these people who are, you know, advocates for their suspects, they can be very convincing. Oh, yeah. And w- when I first started this, one of my very first interviews was the foreman's um, talking about Barb Dayton. Right. And I remember knocking on their door thinking like, who are these goofy people with this wild story? And I sat and talked to them and I was like, okay, these are some of the nicest, most genuine people I've ever met. And they are 100% telling the truth. You know, their story is what their good friend told them. So it's not like Ron made up this wild story so he could put it in a book and make a bazillion dollars. No, he has a wild story. One of his good friends told him and he's trying to figure out if it's true or not. Yeah, I think I think it's true of probably most of these people who claim that either, you know, their uncle or their husband was the I, I think they generally do believe what they're saying. You know, whether or not it's true or not, of course, is is debatable. But I think in most cases these people have they really do believe what, what they say and they're not, you know, they're not trying to profit off of of uh, you know their relationship to this person. I think, I think it's, I think it comes from a genuine place. One thing I know for sure is that on my deathbed, I'm going to tell my family I committed some wild crime and that I buried $400,000 somewhere in Southern Kentucky, just so that I know what my kids will be doing for the rest of their lives. Looking for my secret buried treasure. Right now what, okay. As long as, um, you know, it's interesting. um, I've been looking forward to talking to you course but i one of the main reasons is because i have questions of my own you know i think i'm a lot like probably a lot of your listeners in that i have you know i have some idea and i I have some you know knowledge of this of this case but obviously nothing like uh, what you have and like i you know i've told you and i'm sure you were of too the sources are sort of all over the place depending on where you look and you're never quite sure you know what to believe about certain aspects of this case. So, um, so anyway, I'm, I'm glad that we've been able to, you know, talk about a few of those things today, like the parachute and, and the ransom money. Oh yeah. Cause I mean, if you're pushing a suspect narrative, they only bring up the details of the case that fits their suspect and they'll leave out the other ones. Right. I mean, I, I personally don't have any favorite suspects. I mean, and maybe that's why, because I'm looking, I, I think I'm looking at this more objectively than some people, um, you know, I'll get on one person and then I'll, the more I'll learn and then I'll think, well, no, that really doesn't work. And sometimes like, uh, you know, like these other people, I try to ignore certain facts that maybe contradict my theories, but then eventually I'll just say, no, this isn't it. I mean, and then I said to myself, well, the FBI couldn't figure out, you know, what makes me think I can <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of like disdain and distrust for the FBI, especially in the Cooper Vortex. And I mean, it's just, it was a bunch of dudes trying their best to solve this. Absolutely. And they right. had a lot more resources and the crime was a lot more fresh um, right. then than it is now. So I don't, yeah. I don't look down on the FBI's investigation. I mean, if you look through the FBI files, they were trying absolutely everything they could think of. I can't imagine how, as frustrating as it is for, uh, you know, people in, in the vortex, 
it's got to be 10 times as frustrating for these FBI agents who are, you know, intimately involved in this case to spend all that time and all those resources and all that energy and really end up with nothing in, in, in the end. Um, that's got to be incredibly frustrating. Oh, yeah. It's the only unsolved commercial air hijacking in the history of the world. And not only that, it, it, it I mean, they're obviously aware that it doesn't make it doesn't make, you know, their the organization look great. And I'm sure that they did everything they could and, and um, put their best efforts forward to solve this case. I don't I don't think um, I think they wanted to solve this as much as as, as anyone. Oh, yeah. And I, I I always bring that up with Rackstraw and McCoy because the FBI had both of them in custody. So if there was anything that they could have done to link them to that hijacking, I think they would have, even if it was a little bit shaky, at least then they would have had someone. Right. Yes. Um, It's just, it it really is incredible though. If you think about it, close to what, a thousand suspects? Oh yeah. They looked at well over a thousand suspects. A thousand suspects and not one person was even was charged with anything. Right. Yeah. It's that's remarkable, isn't it? Oh, and how many cases has the FBI made a public announcement? Hey, right. uh, we didn't get anywhere with this and we're giving up. Right. And not only that, it, you know, involving the public in, in this by, you know, very early on getting getting the story out there, getting the sketch out there. I mean, that sketch became iconic pretty, pretty quickly, pretty early on. Oh, yeah. Even in 2008, they had FBI agent Larry Carr working the case, you know, maybe in his free time or whatever. And he actually got on a D.B. Cooper Internet forum, used the screen name Secret with the letter C, K-R-E-T, and was posting about the case. And eventually it was, he, you know, outed himself when people were like, hey, you have more information on this than we have access to. But just the idea that the FBI was willing to, uh, oh, let's see what the internet forum has to say about this case. Yeah, that's uh, right. It's, you know, I wonder if there'll be any, since the 50th anniversary is coming up, I, I, it'll be interesting to see if there's any, I don't know, any sort of announcement by them. <laughs> probably not. I think they probably want to, you know, forget this. And move I'm on. hoping the announcement is there's going to be like a 93-year-old man in the audience that stands up and says, it was me. <laughs> well, if I had to guess, I would, I would have to imagine that at this point, um, whoever D.B. Cooper was, there's no way he made it to 93 years old. Probably not. A daredevil who liked to smoke. They t- tend not I to like live to smoke long and lives. drink and jump out of airplanes as a middle-aged man. I, I, don't, I just don't see that happening. But, you know, you never know. They're, you know, that's really, that's, that's something else. <laughs> All right, let's let's talk about your project, George. Okay. You've got an adult coloring book out, The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, a true crime adult coloring book. That's right. What gave you the idea to do this? Like I said, I've always been interested in this in this case, and I recently within the last uh, year or so I started doing some self-publishing, and I do you know a few things here and there. And I wanted to 
uh, like I said, I've, I've, I'm fascinated by this case. And then I looked around and of course I realized that there are already these, you know, amazing books out there by, you know, Ruth, Bruce Smith and Jeffrey Gray. And then there's also that, uh, you know, wonderful children's book by Tom Sullivan. And I didn't think I could really add anything to those, you know, particular genres. So I thought, well, I thought of this from, because I'm a visual person, I thought of this from the visual angle. And I thought, you know, this might, this would really, I think make a really interesting adult coloring book because the story, again, is it's like a, it's like a Hollywood, something out of a Hollywood blockbuster. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's airliners and, and there's, you know, he's jumping out of planes. And, and I mean, it's, and I, you know, one thing I wish I had included, um, but I didn't was, and I laid, sort of late in the process of creating this, this, this book, I, I don't know how I missed it along the way, but then I, I discovered that um, I didn't realize an SR-71 Blackbird was actually involved in the, the search, you know, in the search effort, which, I mean, how cool would that be? Yeah, back when it was the most secret thing on the planet, right? Which is which is incredible. Um, so so anyway, so I thought um, you know this would this would be a really interesting case to take on in this format. And I did some research, and I I, I don't know I I guess I just assumed that something like this must already exist because I thought well I mean I mean while it's a good idea I'm sure someone else has thought of it. And of course I did some research and there really isn't anything like this about, you know, in this particular format about D.B. Cooper. So I thought, well, okay, I, especially since the 50th anniversary is coming up, I thought I better, you know, jump on this. And so I dove right in and, and I sort of gave myself sort of a, you know, a budget to work with and, and what I wanted to be. And I did a kind of a, you know, rough outline of, of what I want to cover. And I mean, because as you know, you can write a thousand page book on this, this case, if you, if you wanted to. Um, so I thought, okay, well, this, this book is for someone who, um, I, I, and also I thought it was a more, you know, accessible way to introduce the story to, to an audience that maybe um, didn't know anything about it, like you know, a younger audience. And so I thought that, I could you know, make it pretty you know, simple, just keep the story simple, just sort of the broad strokes of the story and make it as visually interesting as possible, which uh, like I said, it really isn't too hard considering you know, what we're talking about, all the, the action and intrigue and, and, and the mystery itself just sort of lent itself to uh, this format. And it's also, I think, a way of, of uh, you know, readers to like, literally interact with the story to kind of get in there and add their own, you know, color and, and, and their own flavor to, to the story itself. And uh, I, I, like you, I, I really like the story and I, and I want to keep this, this story alive. And I thought this was kind of an interesting way of introducing this story to the next generation. Like I said, it, it's for, of course, it's an adult coloring books. But it's certainly for, as they say, kids of all ages. In fact, my sister, who has uh, grandchildren, she bought a few copies and she gave it to them to sort of play with. And she said within 10 minutes, they were debating, you know, <laughs> debating what happened to him. And <laughs> so, which is very cute. 
And, but I was glad to hear that because that's sort of, that's the idea, you know, to sort of, to keep the conversation going, to keep, uh, and to, for maybe older readers, to entice them and to, you know, get them to learn more about this, maybe then move on to one of the other books, uh, the, you know, Bruce Smith or Jeffrey Gray or any of the other, you know, amazing books about this case. So, um, yeah, I, I'm really, you know, I, I'm really, I'm happy with the way it turned out. I think people real, who, uh, I think people really enjoy it. And I could, um, I, like I said, I think it's a nice way to introduce a new audience to this story um, in a really interesting and exciting way. And it also allows you to, you know, to, to be creative at the same time. Oh, I think he did a great job. I mean, I love, I love seeing him like at the airport before the hijacking because like there is no picture of that. So just being able to see that in your book, it's like, oh yeah, you know, he was, he did have to go stand in line and pay for his ticket. It would be great if there was a security camera in the airport back then, but. Right. And then I like that your book is just the facts on the case, a, a light view of the facts on the case. And then you give three scenarios and these right. are the only scenarios that could happen. No right. pull. He dies. He does pull a shoot and dies during the jump somehow. Or he survives the jump. And it wasn't like, oh, yeah. And then he moved, uh, you know, to Pittsburgh and lives with his family. No, there was no suspect or theory part of any of that. It was just this is what the three options for him were. And then I do enjoy kind of the one of him on the beach because I always kind of right. think of him afterward, you know, reading the newspaper, the D.B. Cooper hijacking, and he's on the beach right. sipping a Mai Tai. Well, I mean, th- I think that's what, again, that's what's great about this case is that, you know, like you said, that there, there, I present three scenarios and any th- it, any of the three are, are, you know, are as plausible as the next. I mean, I suppose you can make an argument for, for either, you know, any of the three. And that's what's really just so fascinating is, you, you know, you can make the case that, oh, well, no, um, you know, based on the weather that night and based on um, there's, a you know, the, the, the military shoot, he could have become disoriented and possibly either the shoot malfunctioned or he, you know, again, he became disoriented. He wasn't able to pull the shoot. I mean, you can make that case. Um, you could make the case that he... He just landed in some trees somewhere and, and maybe is still up there to this day. And then there, of course, like a lot of people believe, he, he made it. Which do you believe? Well, I think, you know, I, you know, it changes all the time. I do believe he made it. I really, I, I do. And I don't just say that. I, I, I believe that if he didn't make it, I think they would have found something at this point some kind of evidence and there other than what the, the placard from the, the plane has been the only the, the placard i think's been disproven i mean oh, right? yeah the whole placard thing i personally have seen with my eyeballs two different placards that claim to be that one really yes so i just and then you know flyjack again <laughs> did some work sort of disproving that that came from that plane so i'm not sure and what what does the placard tell us anyways i don't know i i i 
my I, my understanding was that um, where it landed uh, gives us a general idea of you know, but but I mean, I suppose it doesn't really help too much in that we don't know how long the aft stairs were open before he jumped, and I think the theory is that you know so. So for all we know, it if it was part of the plane, it could have ripped off maybe 10 minutes prior to him jumping. We, we just don't know. So I, I, I think you're right. I don't think it really, even if it was uh, the actual placard, I don't know how much, uh, how much that helps us determine when and where he, he jumped. And then I normally ask my guests if they think the flight path is accurate. But you have a map in your book, so I'm going to go with you like the FBI's flight. Well, map. I, I, you know, only because again, my understanding is that they based it on air traffic control and military radar, and they, they went through you know flight transcripts and the flight recorder. So I, I mean, I have to believe that it's I have to believe it's accurate based on based on their you know their evidence. Um, what do you, what's your feeling? Oh, I'm totally with you on that one, George. I don't yeah. see any reason to, to question it or disbelieve it. Now, um, now I, just getting back to what I think happened. So, uh, yeah, I think he made it. Um, of course, of course, you know, the, the whole Tina Bar money fine, that's a whole other, that's a whole other story. And of course, what happened to the money? That's obviously part of the mystery. Um, I said, I mean, I know pe- some people have speculated that maybe he lost it on the way down. But again, other than those three bundles on Tina Bar, you would think, I don't know, a stray bill here and there would be found. And it seems like uh, obviously not one other bill has been found in 50 years. Whether he somehow was able to launder it, I mean, that's the only, I guess, scenario where he could launder the money and somehow spend it that way. But otherwise I'm not sure exactly, or maybe he buried it and lost it. I mean, who knows, but I do, I do believe, I do believe that he, um, he landed because again, I don't think someone takes, takes this on unless they are pretty confident that, um, that they're going to, you know, they're going to make this jump. Do you think his bomb was real? (sighs) That's another one. I don't, I don't think so. It seems to me that there is no reason why the bomb had to be real. No one is going to no one's going to challenge someone who says they have a bomb. I think that's what are they going to say? Prove it? I mean, it, it didn't have to be real, and there would be really there's no reason for it to be real. Um, so I know I don't believe I don't believe it was real. We talked about the sketches a little bit, but what do you think of the fact that the two main sketches, both of them look pretty different? I don't. I, I guess I don't understand why they did that because, because now, you've doubled the pool of suspects. It seems to me, you know, yep. suddenly you're not looking for you know you're not only are you looking for guys who look like Bing Crosby, but you're looking for guys who look like um, I think you. I think one of your podcasts you Carrie said Grant. Carrie Grant, right? <laughs> so I'm not sure what purpose that served other than to. Uh, you know, double the size of the suspect pool. Uh, I think it. Uh, I think it was a terrible idea. Now, now that one was was that initiated by was it Schaffner? The I've heard one? she had a lot to do with it because she wasn't stoked about the way the first sketch looked. 
And maybe the FBI, you know, they had that sketch out for a year. So maybe they thought, okay, maybe we're going in the wrong direction. Let's try doing this again and see if it miraculously leads to our man. Did Tina Mucklow agree with that second sketch or or was, because that's, I mean, obviously she spent the most time with him. So I would have to imagine that her, you know, her description would hold the most weight. I believe she said the first sketch is more accurate. Okay. I, I imagine the FBI, maybe just out of frustration, you know, they said, you know what, we're not getting, maybe the lead started tailing off at, at a certain point and they thought, well, maybe this will sort of reinvigorate the investigation. But I, I, I agree with you that I think it just, I, I, I think it did more harm than good. Why do you think this case is still unsolved? Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, with the passage of time, unfortunately, and as most or a lot of the players involved sort of, you know, start fading away, um, and you're not going to be getting these firsthand accounts anymore. And even if you did, you know, just due to the passage of time, um, you know, how it is with your your memory, you know, your memory of things changes over time. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I there are many times where I, I'll think of something and, I, and I'll remember maybe, the, uh, you know, it'll be, I'll think of a car that I used to have and I'll think it was a certain color. And then I'll look at an old picture and like, oh, that wasn't even the color I remembered. So I think the passage of time, every day that goes by, I think, unfortunately, unless there's some sort of um, major discovery, either of the money or, uh, you know, a body or something along those lines, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I guess, you know, barring those two pieces of evidence, I'm not sure how this, this gets solved unless we have some sort of piece of evidence that we can extract DNA from um, and then compare it to the, I mean, I don't, I don't even know, did they take DNA samples from, I mean, at that time, obviously DNA technology wasn't, was, must've been in its infancy. They, the FBI said they had a DNA profile, but it was partial. And so they couldn't right. use it to uh, say who Cooper was, but they did use it to say uh, like Dwayne Weber wasn't Cooper. So I, I don't even know what the deal with that profile is. I don't like it. I don't trust it. <laughs> right. Well, I know that they've, you know, there have been cases uh, like Jack the Ripper, for instance. I mean, of course, I don't think anyone says definitively that that case has been solved, but there certainly are much stronger suspects than there ever have been. And that case is, I don't know, even know how old that case is over what, a hundred years old, maybe, or maybe older. So I think there is, there is some hope, but on the other hand, I think that's part of the allure of this, this case. I know from listening to your podcast that one of the things you <laughs> you don't want to happen is, is, is for, uh, you want to know, I mean, I, I can just imagine to me, boy, wouldn't it be great if somehow, some way there was like a like 60 minutes interview of this person that they could sit down and just ask, ask him, you know, all the questions that we all want answered. And boy, wouldn't that be something? Um, obviously that's very unlikely, but boy, that's something to really think about, isn't it? Oh, I think about that all the time. I, this case has to stay a mystery or I get to know all of the details. Anything right. in between that, I do not support. Right. Yeah. 
But again, I think that's the part of part of the attraction of this case is, and the frustration is the is the unknown. And at the same time, while there are things we just don't know, um, it allows us to kind of write our own story, you know, and, and make Didi Cooper who we want him to be, you know, regardless of who he was as a real flat, you know, real human. Of person, we can make him either heroic or we can make him a villain. Uh, we can make him uh, uh, anti-hero. We can fashion him to be who we want him to be. And I, I really do think that's part of the allure of this case. Well said, George. I totally agree with that. Thank you. So um, I, I, I suppose Short of an interview with the, the man himself, I, I'm not sure if I want this case to be solved. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's a hard question for you. Okay, I'm ready. Why did he choose the name Dan Cooper? That's, that's a great question. You know, the comic book connection is hard to ignore because... If it wasn't that, the only thing I can think of is I try and think of my, maybe there's someone he knew, you know, maybe there's somebody he went to high school with or he knew as a child named Dan Cooper, but I don't know. If he, if he did have a military background, I know some people suspect that he was possibly French Canadian. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know this, this the uh, comic book, Dan Cooper was... Um, was it in French or was it? Yeah, it was in French. Um, I've seen it in Spanish. Okay. But it, it was never in America. I, I just watched this pretty cool documentary. It's like 40 minutes long on like Canadian broadcasting company or channel, something like that, about Dan Cooper. And, you know, he was super popular in Belgium and in French-speaking Canada. And people knew about him. I mean, and, and in the States, nobody even made the the Dan Cooper comic book connection until years and years later. Right. That's, I mean, it seems really hard. And especially if he had a military background and possibly he was stationed in Europe. I mean, it is possible that he came across uh, this comic book at some point. Um, right. And if you're one, overseas and you don't speak French, what can you read? You could still exactly. read a comic book. That's exactly right. And as a matter of fact, especially at that time during World War II, I know for sure that the soldiers, you know, they loved comic books because not only because they were very accessible and and um, and they were kids, they were 17. <laughs> exactly. And it probably reminded them of, of home and it sort of, you know, took their mind off what was happening. So, I mean, it's, it's very plausible that that he came across this this comic book in his travel and maybe that name just stuck in his head. Otherwise, I don't know, you can pick a million different names. Why Dan Cooper? It, it just seems to be too much on the nose. I agree. Do you, uh, okay, you, have to, you have to bet. Do you bet that he chose the name because of the comic book? I would have to. I mean, it, it's about, a, you know, it's about a paratrooper. <laughs> I mean, come on, named Dan Cooper. It's got to be. I mean, I guess back people, you know, things were very different back then, obviously, than they are today. And the only way that he would come across something like that would be if he were 
uh, someone who spent any time in Europe, right? I mean, it wasn't like today where they would be importing this into some sort of a specialty comic book shop that was in your you know local mini mall. So I guess that's another that's another piece of evidence that he you know possibly had a military background of, of some sort. All right, now I'm going to hit you with the hardest question. Okay, How'd the money get on Tina Bar? Oh boy, boy, oh boy. That's a tough one. I mean, I don't, I, you know, don't don't we all wish we knew? I mean, there are just a million things about that whole, you know, how the money got there, why it was only three bundles. Not to get off track too much, but have you seen the there's reports recently about uh, Eric Ulis doing a a search again? Oh, definitely. I don't know. Has has anything been found? I only I heard about it a few weeks back, but I haven't. Not yet. And I mean, where the money was found on Tina Bar, it's now underwater because that whole area has changed. Right. Um, so the ground was like 10 feet higher uh, really? than it is now. So I don't know. And I, also, Eric, he's still, I think, a proponent of the Western flight path. And I just, I can't get on board with that. I love Eric, right. but I don't love the Western flight path. Right. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know. I wish I did because it's really, I mean, I know some people believe that it was planted there, Tina Barr, Tina Mucklow. I don't believe that. That seems to be a bit of a stretch, but I know some people do believe that. I, I don't know. I don't, it, it's, it's fascinating because really without that money find, it's, um, you could make a stronger case that he never made it, right? I mean, without that money find, you could say, well, he went down somewhere and the money's with him where it happens to be. But I guess my answer is, I have no idea. I, I don't know. I wish I did. What, what's your feeling? I have no idea either. I mean, again, 50 years later, it's still being worked on. Like Tom Kay's research that was published in a scientific journal on the sure. diatoms on those bills are a spring only species and there are no winter or summer diatoms on there the money was found in february cooper jumped in november so how is it that the money only got wet during the spring i can't even wrap my head around it and i've heard a bunch of different theories how the money got there you, you have the dredge theory and you have um, a wild dog grabbed the money from wherever he found it and walked it to the beach. Or you have it was planted by a human. Uh, Dwayne Weber's story is probably the most compelling, um, even though I'm not a Dwayne Weber as Cooper guy. The, at least there's a, at least he can account for it in Dwayne's right. story. Every other story, there's no, I, I don't know how the money got there. At least with Dwayne, you have, that story about him staying, gosh, at like the Red Lion or something in downtown Vancouver and throwing the money into the river. Is that how it got there? I, I don't know. But at least at least that one kind of makes a little bit more sense. Boy, I bet you'd like to have Brian Ingram on your show, wouldn't you? I'm hoping to have Brian Ingram on the show. We'll be, oh my, he be and I will both be at CooperCon this year. Are you going? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry? Are you going to CooperCon? No, I'm not. I probably should, but I, I, I'm not. No. no you should. It? You could sit out and uh, sell books. 
When is it? Uh, it's the weekend just before Thanksgiving. Okay, maybe I'll look into that. Yeah, coopercon.com. Okay. I'll, I'll be there. Eric will be there. Brian Ingram will be there. Uh, well, I th- I'm, unfortunately, I think a lot of the hardcore types will yell at me for having Diddy Cooper with a tie on the, on the cover of on the cover of my... Only my, a couple of them. Only a couple of them will yell at you. Okay. Well, <laughs> I would say, uh, getting back to Tina Barr, I, you know, I don't know. It's That's why I mentioned Brian Ingram, because again, wouldn't you like to know exactly the scenario? And I, and I know he's a young boy, and it's probably hard to remember, but Maybe, maybe not. Like my understanding is that it was uh, three bundles and they were stacked on top of each other. Is that the general consensus? Yes. Uh, I know some people are real sticklers for the terminology used. And to appease those sticklers, I'll say it was three packets of ah. $100 bills into one bundle. Okay. All if right. you're a stickler for the packet versus bundles terminology. <laughs> right. I think mainly what I'm, I'm thinking is the fact that they were stacked on top of each other. Uh, it seems to me that if they were, you know, if someone threw them in the river or if they were um, uncovered due to dredging, I, I wonder how likely it is that they would still be in a stack. Now this, the stack, they weren't, there were three separate stacks. Is that correct? Or, or, or yeah. So the the money was given to Cooper in packets of one hundred twenty dollar bills, and then okay. those packets were randomly bundled together with rubber bands around the outside. So okay. the banknotes should have had paper bands around them to signify it was one hundred twenty dollar bills. And then they put like three or four of those together and then put a rubber band around that. Oh, I see. Okay. So it could have fallen out of his bag in one bundle like that. Right. Okay. All but right. even then, the, the, the rubber bands and the paper, those don't do well outdoors. So it seems like it had to go into that place before it started aging. Or it was sitting in his closet for some period of time before he buried it if we want to go that route right so what you're saying is that if if it were exposed to the elements for the for that um what almost uh, nine years or whatever it was that they're probably i mean first of all the rubber bands would have disintegrated most likely and that of course if that happened then the money would then of course scatter um so i mean i've, I've seen some um articles where they're saying that whatever they were able to determine what type or what brand of uh, rubber band was used for those packets and that uh, they did tests and that they, they would disintegrate after way, it certainly wouldn't last. Uh, I think after a few years, it would, it would become brittle and then disintegrate. And so therefore they, um, some people believe that, as you mentioned, it was probably in a a, you know, a more stable environment for a time and then later moved to Tina Bar for whatever reason. So, I mean, to me, that seems like a logical conclusion. Is there anything we missed, George? Uh, I think, you know, I think we, we hit the suspects and the parachutes and the flight path. And I think, is there anything else you would like to... Uh... What's the name of your daughter's podcast? 
Oh, it's called Our American Queen. It's a Taylor Swift podcast. It's nice. actually both my daughters. Both of my daughters uh, do it together. It's something they they do together and they they enjoy it. It's, you know, they have, they have a good time with it. And yeah, good so for them. And if they need a guest daughter, for their show, I don't know anything about Taylor Swift, but if they want to talk about DB Cooper, they can hit me. Up. <laughs> well, you know what? I'll ask them. You never know. <laughs> but yeah, she, like I said, she's the one who told me about your podcast. Why I didn't discover it is, is another question. But she said, you know, there's this really interesting podcast. And uh, so, yeah, so I have to thank her for uh, turning me out to your amazing podcast. Well, I'll have to check out their Taylor Swift podcast. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm sure they would appreciate that. All right. So everyone go pick up George's new book. The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, a true crime adult coloring book. It's great, and I appreciate you coming on, George. Thank you, Darren. The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, a true crime adult coloring book. It's great, and it's 10 bucks. If you're listening to this, I know you'll like it. If you don't feel like coloring, give it to your kids or your niece. I haven't decided if I'm coloring mine in or not yet. I might buy a second one, so I'll have one for my collection and one my kids and I can color. It says adult, but there are no adult themes in the book. Well, other than skyjacking. I've got a link for you in the show notes. George and I want to give a shout out to Vatrul Reza Rivai, who illustrated the book. Bro, I am so sorry about butchering your name. We've got a link to his website in the show notes. I won't read it because I'm only going to mispronounce his name once. Do you know who D.B. Cooper was? Do you have a new theory? Do you have something to say? Hit us up. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to George McKeon for creating a nice, fun project for us all in the Vortex. Thank you to Russell Colbert for not bailing on me. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to the Cooper Vortex.